When I married my wife, Chan, she was a flight attendant for Delta Airlines. And so um, one of the perks of this marriage agreement was that as her husband, I got to fly anywhere in the world free of charge. The only catch was I had to dress to the nines and I had to sit standby. So we mostly would fly to Orlando to visit her family. And so um, we would go to the gate, walk up to the uh, counter and tell the gate agent our names and they would put us on the standby list. And so we would wait for them to call us when there was an empty seat. So just imagine this scene. Um, uh, we're in the airport. I'm dressed in a suit and a tie and looking really good. I'm holding a 10-month-old baby boy who also is dressed nicely and looking really cute. I have a very heavy book bag because I am a seminary student. I also have um, a diaper bag that's pretty heavy too because it's filled with all of the stuff that we need along with a small cooler so that the aforementioned baby can have his bottles and the car seat. We had to have a car seat and there would be various and sundry toys uh, creatively attached uh, to this car seat. And so uh, while we're sitting in, in the gate area, we are intensely watching the gate agent's every move. And another dynamic is we were trying to figure out who else in this waiting area was on standby. And more specifically, who else in the waiting area was more important than us on the standby list. So Chan was good at this. And so she would lean in and say, see over there, that's a pilot. She's definitely getting on before us. Or over there in the corner, that older looking guy, he's a flight attendant, I just know it. He's gonna get on before us. That kind of game was being played. We would start early in the morning. Getting to Orlando wasn't a real problem, but flying back home out of Orlando, it was crazy. Like it would be a nightmare. And so we would start at the very first flight, what that red-eye flight in the morning, and we would put our names on the list. And, and, and inevitably, it was until the end of the day, we would catch the very last flight. Um, it was literally exhausting. But whenever they called our names, we were ready to go. Now, we've made it to Palm Sunday. Today is Palm Sunday. Jesus and, and his disciples have been on the move for some time now. Actually, uh, Luke tells us way back in, in chapter 9, he says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So at this point, Jesus has found his bearings. He knows where he has to go, and he knows what he has to do. And the energy is building. And you can almost feel it in the air. Revolution is coming. Like the long-awaited king is finally here. And, and not only could you feel it on the wind, but 
Um, but your eyes could see the signs too. You could just see it. Uh, Luke tells us that the crowds were gathered on the Mount of Olives and that they were gathered there singing praises to God joyfully because of the things they had seen. They were there because of, of the, the wonderful miracles and things that Jesus had done. Now, uh, the ground itself gave a visual testimony. Uh, tradition held that the Messiah would appear in that place on the Mount of Olives. And the donkey thing. Now, that's an interesting thing because Jesus always walked. And so this is definitely a thing that's done on purpose. Jesus does this on purpose. And, and the people would know. It was a prophecy that was being fulfilled um, from, from the prophet Zechariah, uh, chapter 9. It's, it's titled this section, The Coming Ruler of God's People. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Like this is exciting stuff. The empire would be defeated. The, the oppression would be gone, and, and the peace of God's kingdom uh, would come. And so all uh, these people, everyone in Jerusalem, they would be familiar with this prophecy. Jesus's intentions were obvious. He was intentionally proclaiming to be Messiah. And this cult, um, Luke points out, and, and other gospel writers do too, that it was a cult uh, that had never been ridden it needed to be a cult that had never been ridden. And uh, in, in biblical times, at, at least uh, stories that we read in the Old Testament, when an animal was needed for some sacred purpose, um, then uh, the animal couldn't have been ridden before or even like used um, in labor. Like, for example, um, when the Ark of the Covenant needed to be moved, the, the prophet Samuel uh, tells them to attach to the cart um, two oxen uh, that had never been yoked uh, because this was a, a sacred moment. So uh, the cloaks and the branches, you know, we, we wave the branches on Palm Sunday and it's, it's very celebratory. Um, we sing hosannas and such. Well, um, the cloaks were a sign of loyalty. Not only did they put the cloaks on the, on the, the colt, um, but the people, as Jesus was coming, would lay their cloaks in the road. It was, it was a sign of, of commitment and loyalty. And that's what this, this crowd uh, uh, was doing, is they were making a statement. They were going along with this thing and the song that they sang. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118. And so in the story, there are a few Pharisees, or Luke says some Pharisees, um, we're, we're upset by this, and we're telling Jesus, you, your disciples need to be quiet. And no one's really sure what their motive was for wanting to silence the crowd. 
Um, maybe it was because they really didn't agree with this uh, identifying Jesus with the Messiah. Uh, or maybe what they thought was happening was way too political and that the Roman Empire would smell the revolution uh, and, and that they would retaliate with, with a vengeance. Well, this is the thing. We've made it to Palm Sunday, and everybody's really pumped about it. But the revolution that Jesus is bringing isn't at all what they have in mind. And it's not like Jesus hasn't told them that it's going to be a different thing. I mean, again, back in, back in chapter 9, um, in Luke 9, 43, it says, it says, All were astounded at the greatness of God. Everyone was amazed at, at all that he was, he was doing. And, and Jesus says to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. I love the way he says that. Let these words sink into your ears. He says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands. He continues to tell them, this isn't going to be like what you think. But they didn't understand this saying. Its meaning was concealed from them so that they could not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And so there's this confusion. They're not quite sure what's going on. And then there was the argument. All the gospel writers talk about it. They give slightly different details with it. Uh, but Luke says that an argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. But Jesus, aware of their inner thoughts, took a little child and put it by his side and said to them, Whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for the least among all of you is the greatest. So, you know, Jesus is telling them really exactly how things are going to unfold. And yet they can't see it. They keep imagining images of the palace and the throne room. And, and maybe more importantly to them, they're trying to imagine which of us um, is going to hold the, the place of power. Um, and maybe even which of us is, is going to be uh, the most wealthy. You know, a child is, is powerless and vulnerable. And most of the time, uh, someone else's property. Not exactly what the disciples had in mind. And so this Palm Sunday celebration, it's actually kind of, of short-lived. Um, when you continue reading the story in Luke's Gospel... It's like they round a bend on their, way to the, on their way to Jerusalem, and they get to this place where you can see the city. Luke says that Jesus could see the city, and, and I'll just read it. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground 
and you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. I wonder what that did to the hymn. <laughs> and then there's the temple scene. It's also familiar to us too. Luke tells us that uh, he entered the temple and he, he began to dr drive out those who were, who were selling things there. You know, typically uh, we, we talk about Jesus' anger um, and, and like he's leveling his anger at the, the keepers of the temple because they've turned it into this, to this marketplace. You know, you've, you've made it a, a den of, of robbers, Jesus says, when it, it's to be a house of prayer. Um, and, and so I imagine that there's probably uh, a number of, of layers to Jesus' anger in this situation. I also read uh, some, some scholars who, who say that this, this word um, for robber, like in Jesus' day, um, it wasn't just in reference to like your ordinary thief or your ordinary robber, uh, that it was actually uh, a, a reference um, to the revolutionaries. You know, those kind of ultra-Orthodox uh, um, plotting, kind of on standby, ready to, to use violence if necessary um, uh, to bring about the kingdom so our confirmation class uh, last Sunday, um, we're kind of marching through church history, and George Thompson and I get really pumped about it. And you know, this class seems like they're kind of enjoying it too, uh, which makes us uh, which makes us really happy. Um, so as we um, as we go from the time of Jesus to to present time, we're right in the middle of that. Um, in the Dark Ages, in the Crusades, and, and we're learning about um, important historical figures during these time periods. And so last Sunday, as we were um, talking about the, the church during this time of the Crusades and all that stuff, uh, we had an opportunity to, to learn about St. Francis and about how St. Francis was, you know, born into a wealthy family. His father was a, a, a silk merchant and, and all of that. Um, and so he kind of lived this life, um, you know, the the, the, the wealthy life, he was young and, and handsome and, and witty, um, but that he had an encounter with the poor. A beggar approaches him, and he's stirred by that. And after he finishes selling his uh, cloth to this particular client, he chases down this beggar and just empties his pockets, gives him uh, uh, all that he's got. Uh, later, his father kind of goes into a rage because he gave away his money and all of that. Francis um, enlisted in the army to fight the Crusades, but he was so horrified by all of that, um, that that he renounced all of that violence. He renounced all of that wealth, um, and he made a, a, a commitment to a life of serving God. Um, his friends would chide him and make fun of him, and, and, and you know, on one occasion said, you know, are you going to get married? He's like, yes, of course I'm going to get married, but, but like, he was like, my bride... Um, is going to be Lady Poverty. He was committed um, uh, to this different way of bringing God's kingdom in, into reality. And so um, 
there's this monk named Brother Juniper uh, who was um, serving under uh, Francis of Assisi. And out of profound love for Jesus um, and Jesus' statement that I was naked and you clothed me, uh, Brother Juniper uh, would readily give up his clothing to anyone he encountered that had need. And so on a number of occasions, he would arrive back at the monastery completely naked. And so, uh, as you can imagine, uh, the, uh, uh, the experiences of Brother Juniper didn't sit very well um, with the good residents of Assisi. And so in response to their complaints, um, Francis just tells him, like, you can't do this. And he actually makes him uh, give a vow uh, that he will no longer uh, give his clothing away again. And so Juniper uh, agrees to that. Well, shortly thereafter, uh, Juniper encounters this man who didn't have enough clothes. He was freezing in the cold. And so this man begs him for assistance. And, and Juniper responds to him, my dear man, like, I really don't have anything to give you. And I am under oath. I have been told by my superior that I'm not allowed to give my habit to anyone or any part of it uh, to, to anyone. But then he looked at him and he said, but if you just pull it off of my back, I certainly will not prevent you. You know, that's the kind of, of revolution that Jesus has in mind. It's this whole army of people who are on standby, waiting on the fringes of their seats, ready for their name to be called, ready to go. Richard Foster says in thinking about the disciples and their argument about who is the greatest and what place of power would they have and you know kind of the pecking order stuff that that was that was going on with Jesus's disciples he says uh, something very profound um, whenever there is trouble over who is the greatest Foster says there's trouble over who is the least and that we can probably square with the fact that that we're uh, might not be the greatest uh, but at least we're not the least. Nobody wants to be considered the least. And that might be what's in play on Thursday evening, this coming Thursday, on Monday, Thursday. Now, they're in the upper, upper room. The disciples are standing around with dirty feet and they're waiting to recline at the table with the man that they know is the new king. And so their question is, does someone forget to arrange for the servant, who's gonna wash our feet? They don't know it yet, but this group, they were on their way to, to becoming a, a church on standby, a church ready at, at the drop of a hat to, uh, to get moving when their name is called, to get moving when there's a, when there's a cry for help, a church ready to get on board and serve, a church ready to show mercy, quick to confess, quick to forgive, to share a cup of water, to give a word of hope. And so Jesus comes into the room 
and he takes a towel and a basin and he redefines greatness. He washes their feet and this handful of most unlikely people follow him into the darkness on a revolutionary path that leads to peace. Amen.